0: Chapter Twelve of Football Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. When the Navy meets the Army, when the friend becomes the foe, when the sailor and the soldier seek each other to overthrow, when old veterans, gray and grizzled, elbow, struggle, push and shove, that they may cheer on to victory, each the service of his love. When the maiden fair and dainty lets her dignity depart, and, all breathless, does her utmost for the team that's next her heart, when you see these strange things happen, then we pray you to recall that the Army and Navy stand firm friends beneath it all. There's a distinctive flavor about an Army-Navy football game. Which, irrespective of the quality of the contending 11s and of their relative standing among the high class teams in any given season, rates these contests annually as among the big games of the year. Tactically and strategically, football bears a close relation to war. That's a vital reason why it should be studied and applied in our two government schools. On the part of the public, there is general appreciation of the spirit, which these two academies have brought into the great autumn sport, a spirit which combines with football per se, the color, the martial pomp, the elan of the military. The merger is a happy one, because football in its essence is a stern, grim game, a game that calls for self-sacrifice, for mental alertness, and for endurance. All these are elements, among others, which we commonly associate with the soldier's calling. If West Point and Annapolis players are not young men who, after graduation, will go out into the world in various civil professions or other pursuits relating to commerce and industry, they are men, on the contrary, who are being trained to uphold the honor of our flag at home or abroad, as fate may decree, fighting men whose lives are to be devoted to the national wheel. It would be strange, therefore, if games in which those thus set apart participate were not marked by a quality peculiarly their own. To far-flung warships the scores are sent on the wings of the wireless, and there is elation or depression in many a remote wardroom in accordance with the aspect of the news. In lonely army posts wherever the flag flies, word of the annual struggle is flashed alike to colonel and the budding second lieutenant, still with down on lip, by them passed to the top sergeant and so on to the bottom of the line. Every football player who has had the good fortune to visit West Point or Annapolis, there to engage in a gridiron contest, has had an experience that he will always cherish. Every team, as a rule, looks forward to out-of-town trips, but when an 11 is to play the Army or the Navy, Not a little of the pleasure lies in anticipation. Mayhap the visitor even now is recalling the officer who met him at the station and his hospitable welcome, the thrill that resulted from a tour under such pleasant auspices of the buildings and the natural surroundings of the two great academies. There was the historic campus, where so many great Army and Navy men spent their preparatory days. An inspiration unique in the experience of the visitor was to be found in the drill of the battalion as they marched past, led by the famous academy bands. There arose in the heart of the stranger, perhaps, the thought that he was not giving to his country as much as these young men, such is the contagion of the spirit of the two institutions. There was always the thrill of the military, whether the cadets and midshipmen passed to the urge of the martial music In their purely military duties, or in equally perfect order to the ordinary functions of life, such as the daily meals, which in the colleges are so informal and in the mess-hall are so precise. Joining their orderly ranks in this big dining-room, one comes upon a scene never to be forgotten. In the process of developing college teams, an eleven gets a real test at either of these academies. You get what you go after. They are out to beat you. Their spirit is an indomitable one. Your cherished idea that you cannot be beaten never occurs to them until the final whistle is blown. Your men will realize after the game that a bruised leg or a lame joint will recall hard tackling of a player like Muston of the Navy or Arnold of West Point, souvenirs of the dash they put into their play. Maybe there comes to your mind a recollection of the Navy's fast offense, their snappy play, the military precision, with which their work is done. Possibly you dream of the wriggling open field running of Snake Lizard, or the bulwark defense of Nichols, or in your West Point experiences you are reminded of the tussle you had in suppressing the brilliant Cromer, that clever little quarterback and field general, or the task of stopping the forging king, the army's old captain and fullback." Not less vivid are the memories of the spontaneous, if measured, cheering behind these men, a wholehearted support that was at once the background and the incentive to their work. The siren cheer of the Navy and the long core yell of the Army, still ringing in the ears of the college invader, were proof of the drive behind the team. I have always counted it a privilege that I was invited to coach at Annapolis through several football seasons. It was an unrivaled opportunity to catch the spirit that permeates the atmosphere of this great service school and to realize how eagerly the progress of football is watched by the heroes of the past who are serving wherever duty calls. It was there that I met Superintendent Wainwright. His interest in Annapolis football was keen. Another officer whose friendship I made at the academy was Commander Grant, who later was Rear Admiral, Commander of the Submarine Flotilla. His spirit was truly remarkable. The way he could talk to a team was an inspiration. It was during the intermission of a Navy Carlisle game, when the score was 11 to 6 in Carlisle's favor, that this exponent of fighting spirit came into the dressing room and in a talk to the team spared nothing and nobody. What he said about the white man not being able to defeat the Indian was typical. As a result of this unique dressing room scene, when he commanded the Navy to win out over the Indians, his charges came through to victory by the score of 17 to 11. There is no one man in Annapolis who sticks closer to the ship and around whom more football traditions have grown than Paul DeShiel, a professor in the academy. He bore for many years the burden of responsibility of Annapolis football. His earnest desire has been to see the Navy succeed. He has worked arduously, and whenever Navy men get together, they speak enthusiastically of the devotion of this former Lehigh hero, official, and role maker. Players have come and gone. The call in recent years has been elsewhere, but Paul de has remained, and his interest in the game has been manifested by self-denial and hard work. Defeat has come to him with great sadness, and there are many games of which he still feels the sting. These come to him as nightmares in his recollections of Annapolis football history. Great has been his joy in the Navy's hour of victory. It was here at Annapolis that I learned something of the old Navy football heroes. Most brilliant of all, perhaps, was Worth Bagley, a marvelous punter and a great fighter. He lost his life later in the war with Spain, standing to his duty under open fire on the deck of the Winslow at Cardenas with the utter fearlessness that was characteristic of him. I heard of the deeds on the football field of Mike Johnson, Trench, Pearson, McCormick, Cavanaugh, Reeves, McCauley, Craven, Kimball, and Bookwalter. I have played against the great Navy guard Halligan. I saw it develop the Navy players Long, Chambers, Reed, Nichols, and Chip Smith, who later was in charge of the Navy athletics. He was one of the best quarterbacks the Navy ever had. I saw Doug Howard grow up from boyhood in Annapolis and develop into a Navy star, saw him later coach their teams to victory, witnessed the great playing of Dougherty, Pearsall, Grady, and Bill Carpenter, who was no longer on the Navy list. All these players, together with Norton, Northcroft, Daig, Halsey, Ingram, Douglas, Jerry Land, Babe Brown, and Dalton stand out among those who have given their best in Army and Navy games. Young Nichols, who was quarterback in 1912, was a most brilliant ground gainer. He resigned from the service early in 1913, receiving a commission in the British Army. He was wounded but later returned to duty only to be killed shortly afterward. Another splendid man. In speaking of Navy football, I cannot pass over the name of W.H. Staten, a man whose whole soul seemed to be permeated with Navy atmosphere and who was always to be depended upon in Navy matters. The association that I formed later in life with McDonough Craven and other loyal Navy football men gave me an opportunity to learn of Annapolis football in their day. The list of men who have been invited to coach the Navy from year to year is a long one. The ideal method of development of an undergraduate team is by a system of coaching conducted by graduates of that institution. Such alumni can best preserve the traditions, correct blunder of other years, and carry through a continuous policy along lines most acceptable. Graduate coaching exclusively is nearly impossible for Navy teams, for the graduates as officers are stationed at far distant points, mostly on board ship. Their duties do not permit of interruption for two months. They cannot be spared from turret and bridge, from the teamwork so highly developed at present on shipboard. Furthermore, their absence from our country sometimes for years keeps them out of touch with football generally, and it is impossible for them to keep up to date, hence the coaching from other institutions. Lt. Frank B. Berrien was one of the early coaches and an able one. Immediately after Doug Howard for three years coached the team to victory, the Navy's football future was then turned over to Jonas Ingram with the idea of working out a purely graduate system in the face of such serious obstacles as have already been pointed out. One of the nightmares of my coaching experiences was the day that the Army beat the Navy through the combined effort of the whole Army team plus the individual running of Charlie Daly. This run occurred at the very start of the second half. Doc Hillebrand and I were talking on the sidelines to Everett's Wren, the umpire. None of us heard the whistle blow for the starting of the second half. Before we knew it, the Army sympathizers were on their feet cheering And we saw Daly hitting it up the field, weaving through the Navy defense. Harmon Graves, who was coaching West Point that year, has since told me that the Army coaches had drilled the team carefully in receiving the ball on a kickoff, with Daly clear back under the goal posts. On the kickoff, the Navy did just what West Point had been trained to expect. Belknap kicked a long high one direct to and then and there began the carefully prepared advance of the Army team. Mowing down the oncoming Navy players, the West Point forwards made it possible for Clever Daly to get loose and score a touchdown after a run of nearly the entire length of the field. This game stands out, in my recollection, as one of the most sensational on record. The Navy, like West Point, had had many victories— But the purpose of this book is not to record year by year the achievements of these two institutions, but rather catch their spirit, as one from without looks in upon a small portion of the busy life that is typical of these service schools. Scattered over the seven seas are those who heard the reveille of football at Annapolis. From a few old-timers, let us garner their experiences and the effects of football in the service. C.L. Poor. Poor. One of the veterans of the Annapolis squad, varsity and hustlers, has something to say concerning the effect of football upon the relationship between officers and men. Generally speaking, he says, it is considered that the relationship is beneficial. The young officer assumes qualities of leadership and shows himself in a favorable light to the men who appreciate his ability to show them something and do it well. The average young American, whether himself athletic or not, Is a bit of a hero worshiper towards a prominent athlete, and so the young officer who has good football ability gets the respect and appreciation of the crew to start with. J. B. Patton, who played three years at Annapolis, says of the early days: I entered the academy in eighteen ninety five. In those days, athletics were not encouraged. The average number of cadets was less than two hundred, and the entrance age was from fourteen to eighteen, really a boys' school. So, when an occasional college team appeared, they looked like old men to us. Match games were usually on Saturday afternoon, and all the cadets spent the afternoon at sail drill on board the Wyoming in Chesapeake Bay. I can remember spending four hours racing up and down the top gallant yard with Stone and Hayward, losing and furling sail and then returning to a roast beef dinner, followed by two forty five minute halves of football. One of our best games, as a rule, was with Johns Hopkins University. Paul DeShiel, then a Hopkins man, usually managed to smuggle one or more pose to Annapolis with his team. We knew it, but at that time we did not object because we usually beat the Hopkins team. Another interesting match was with the deaf-mutes from Kendall College. It was a standing joke with us that they too frequently smuggled good football players who were not mutes. These kept silent during the game and talked with their hands, but frequently, when I tackled one hard and fell on him, I could hear him cuss under his breath. M.M. M. Taylor brings us down to Navy football of the early 90s. In my day, the principal quality sought was beef. Being embryo sailors, we had to have nautical terms for our signals, and they made our opponents sit up and take notice. When I played halfback, I remember my signals were my order relating to the foremast. For instance, four clew clue clue-lines and hands by the halyards, meant that I was the victim. On the conclusion of the order, if the captain could not launch a play made at once, he had to lengthen his signal, and sometimes there would be a string of jargon, intelligible only to a sailor, which would take the light yard men aloft, furl the sail, and probably cast reflections on the stowage of the bunt. Anything connected with the anchor was a kick. The main mast was consecrated to the left half and the mizzen to the full back. In one game, our lack of proper uniform worked to our advantage. I was on the sick list and had turned my suit over to a substitute. I braved the doctor's disapproval and went into the game in a pair of long working trousers and a blue flannel shirt. The opposing team, Pennsylvania, hailed me as Little Boy Blue and paid no further attention to me, so that by good fortune I made a couple of scores. Then they fell upon me, and at the close, all I had left was the pants. J.W. Powell, captain of the 97 team, tells of the interim between Army-Navy games. Our head coach was Johnny Poe, he says, and he and Paul Dashell took charge of the squad. Some of our good men were Russ White, Bill Tardy, Halligan, and Fisher, holding over from the year before. A.T. Graham and Jerry Landis in the line— A wild Irishman in the plebe class, Patty Shea, earned one head position in short order, while A.H. McCarthy went in at the other wing. Jack Asterson, Bobby Henderson, Lewis Richardson, and I made up the backfield. In 95, Princeton had developed their famous ends-back system, which was adopted by Johnny Poe, and the game we played that year was built around this system. Johnny was a deadly tackler, and nearly killed half the team with his system of live tackling practice. This was one of the years in which there was no Army-Navy game, and our big game was the Thanksgiving Day contest with Lafayette. Barkley, Bray, and Reinhardt made Lafayette's name a terror in the football world. The game resulted in an 18-6 to victory for Lafayette. My most vivid recollections of that game are McCarthy's plucky playing with his hand in a plaster cast due to a broken bone, stopping Barkley and Bray repeatedly in spite of this handicap, and my own touchdown, after a 12-yard run, with Reinhardt's 250 pounds hanging to me most of the way. I recall a trip that the Princeton team of 1898 made to West Point. It was truly an attack upon the historical old school in a fashion deluxe. Alex Van Rensselaer, an old Princeton football captain, invited Doc Hillebrand to have the Tiger Eleven meet him that Saturday morning at the Pennsylvania ferry slip in Jersey City. En route to West Point that morning, this old Princeton leader met us with his steam yacht, the May. Boyhood enthusiasm ran high as we jumped aboard. Good fellowship prevailed. We lunched on board, dressed on board. Upon our arrival at West Point, we were met by the academy representative and were driven to the football field. The snappy work of the Princeton team that day brought victory, and we attributed our success to the Van Rensselaer transport. Returning that night on the boat, Doc Hillebrand and Arthur Poe bribed the captain of the May to just miss connecting with the last train to Princeton, and as a worried manager sat alongside of Van Rensselaer, Wondering whether it were not possible to hurry the boat along a little faster, Van Rensselaer himself knew what was in Doc's mind, and so helped make it possible for us to rest at the Murray Hill Hotel overnight, and not allow a railroad trip to Princeton more the luxury of the day. I have a lot of respect for the football brains of West Point. My lot has been very happily cast with the Navy. I have generally been on the opposite side of the field. I knew the strength of their team. I have learned much of the spirit of the academy from their cheering at Army and Navy games. Playing against West Point, our Princeton teams have always realized the hard, difficult task which confronted them, and victory was not always the reward. Football plays a valued part in the athletic life of West Point. From the very first game between the Army and the Navy on the Plains when the Middies were victorious, West Point set out in a thoroughly businesslike way to see that the Navy did not get the lion's share of the victories. If one studies the business-like methods of the Army Athletic Association and reads carefully the bulletins which are printed after each game, one is impressed by the attention given to details. I have always appreciated what King, 96, meant to West Point Football. Let me quote from the publication of the Howitzer in 1896 the estimated value of this player at that time. King, of course, stands first. Captain for two years, he brought West Point from second class directly into first. As fullback, he outplayed every fullback opposed to him, and stands in the judgment of all observers second only to Brooke of Pennsylvania. Let us read what King has to say of a period of West Point football not widely known. "'I first played on the 92 team,' he says. "'We had two Navy games before this.' but they were not much as I look back upon them. At this time, we had for practice that period of Saturday afternoon after inspection. That gave us from about 3 p.m. on. We also had about 15 minutes between dinner and the afternoon recitations, and such days as were too rainy to drill, and from 5.45 a.m. to 6.05 a.m. Later in the year, when it grew too cold to drill, we had the time after about 4.15 p.m., but it became dark so early that we didn't get much practice. We practiced signals, even by moonlight. Visiting teams used to watch us at inspection, 2 o'clock. We were in tight, full-dress clothes, standing at attention for 30 to 45 minutes just before the game, a fine preparation for a stiff contest. We had quite a character by the name of Stacy, a Maine boy. He was a thick-set chap, husky and fast. He never knew what it was to be stopped he would fight it out to the end for every inch. Early in one of the Yale games, he broke a rib and started another, but the more it hurt, the harder he played. In a contest with an athletic club in the last non-collegiate game we ever played, the opposing right tackle was bothering us. In a scrimmage, Stacy twisted the gentleman's nose very severely and then backed away, as the man followed him, calling out to the umpire, Stacy held his face up and took two of the nicest punches in the eyes that I ever saw. Of course, the umpire saw it and promptly ruled the puncher out, just as Stacy had planned. Just before the Spanish War, Stacy became ill. Orders were issued that regiments should send officers to the different cities for the purpose of recruiting. He was at this time not fit for field service, so was assigned to this duty. He protested so strongly that in some way he was able to join his regiment in time to go to Cuba with his men. He participated in all the work down there, and when it was over even he had to give in. He was sent to Montauk Point in very bad shape. He rallied for a time and obtained sick leave. He went to his old home in Maine, where he died. It was his old football grit that kept him going in Cuba until the fighting was over. No mention of West Point's football would be complete without the name of Dennis Michie. He is usually referred to as the father of football at the academy. He was captain of the first two teams we ever had. He played throughout the Navy game in 91 with 10 boils on his back and neck. He was a backfield man and one of West Point's main linebackers. He was most popular as a cadet and officer and was killed in action at San Juan, Cuba. One of the longest runs when both yards and time are considered ever pulled off on a football field was made by Duncan, 95, in our Princeton game of 93. Duncan got the ball on his five-yard line on a fumble, and was well under way before he was discovered. Lott, 96, later a captain of cavalry, followed Duncan to interfere from behind. The only Princeton man who sensed trouble was Doggy Trenchard. He set sail in pursuit— he soon caught up with Lott, and would have caught Duncan, but for the latter's interference. Duncan finally scored the touchdown, having made the 105 yards in what would have been fast time for a Weffers. We at West Point often speak of Balliott's being obliged to call on Phil King to back him up that day, as Ames, one of our greatest centers, was outplaying him, and of the rage of Phil King, because on every point, Nolan, 96, tackled him at once and prevented King from making those phenomenal runs which characterized his playing. Harmon Graves of Yale is a coach who has contributed much to West Point's football. Harmon Graves is too well known as coach to need our praise, says a West Pointer, but it is not only as a successful coach but as a personal friend that he lives in the heart of every member of the team and indeed the entire corps. There will always be a sunny spot at West Point for Graves. In a recent talk with Harmon Graves, he showed me a beautifully engraved watch presented to him by the Cadet Corps of West Point, a treasure prized. Of the privileged days spent at West Point, Graves writes as follows. Every civilian who has the privilege of working with the officers and cadets at West Point to accomplish some worthy object comes away a far better man than when he went there. I was fortunate enough to be asked by them to help in the establishment of football at the academy, and for many years I gave the best I had and still feel greatly their debtor. At West Point, amateur sport flourishes in its perfection, and a very high standard of accomplishment has been attained in football. There are no cross-cuts to the kind of football success West Point has worked for. It is all a question of merit, based on competency, accuracy, and fearless execution. Those of us who have had the privilege of assisting in the development of West Point football have learned much of real value from the officers and cadets about the game and what really counts in the makeup of a successful team. It is fair to say that West Point has contributed a great deal to football generally and has, in spite of many necessary time restrictions, turned out some of the best teams and players in the last 15 years. The greatest credit is due to the Army Officers Athletic Association, which, through its football representatives, started right, and then pursued a sound policy which has placed football at West Point on a firm basis, becoming the standing and dignity of the institution. There have been many interesting and amusing incidents in connection with football at West Point, which helped to make up the tradition of the game there, and are many times repeated at any gathering of officers and cadets. I well remember when Daly, the former Harvard captain, modestly took his place as a plebe candidate for the team, and sat in the front row on the floor of the gymnasium when I explained to the squad, and illustrated by the use of a blackboard, what he and everyone else there knew was the then-Yale defense. There was, perhaps, the suggestion of a smile all around when I began by saying that, from then on, we were gathered there for West Point, and to make its team a success that season, and not for the benefit of Harvard or Yale. He told me afterwards that he had never understood the defense as I had explained it. He mastered it and believed in it, as he won and kept his place on the team and learned some things from West Point football, as we all did. The rivalry with the Navy is wholesome and intense, as it should be. My friend Paul Dashiell, who fully shares that feeling, has much to do with the success of the Navy team and the development of football at the Naval Academy. After a West Point victory at Philadelphia, he came to the West Point dressing room and offered his congratulations. As I took his hand, I noted that tears were in his eyes, and that his voice shook. The next year the Navy won, and I returned the call. I was feeling rather grim, but when I found him surrounded by the happy Navy team, he was crying again, and hardly smiled when I offered my congratulation, and told him that it really made no difference which team won, for he cried anyway. The sportsmanship and friendly rivalry which the Army and Navy game brings out in both branches of the service is admirable and unique, and reaches all officers on the day of the game, wherever in the world they are. Real preparedness is an old axiom at West Point, and has been applied to football. There I learned to love my country, and respect the manhood and efficiency of the Army officers in a better way than I did before. I recall the seasons I have spent there with gratitude and affection, both for the friends I have made and for the Army spirit. Siding with the Navy has enabled me to know West Point's strength. Any mention of West Point's football would be incomplete without the names of some officers who have not only safeguarded the game at West Point, but have been the able representatives of the Army's football during their service there. Such men are Richmond P Davis, Palmer e. Pierce, and WR Richardson. This is the end of chapter thirteen recorded by Lynn Handler.